Good morning and happy Father's Day. It's good to be here. I hope everyone grabbed their socks. I have my cool banana socks on. Uh, they actually say cool banana socks. So uh, thank you for those who handed those out. Uh, that was really exciting. I'm not sure what it means that after preaching two weeks, we needed more snacks in the lobby. Um, I'm just going to accept that maybe that was just about Father's Day. However, I've got mine right down here as well, so I might get bored in the middle and pop them open. So if you uh, do as well, that's perfectly fine. Now, we're glad you're here. Uh, it is Father's Day. Um, I am uh, thankful to have my whole family back from Ghana so that we can be together. I think that's uh, my Father's Day gift, is just having everyone wake up in the same house. Uh, my father also happens to be here, and so yesterday we were able to have both grandpas and everybody over, and it was just a fun family time together. I think that was uh, what was really enjoyable. I know many of you will be getting with fathers later or calling fathers or talking to fathers, uh, and so I hope that you enjoy this day. Uh, I'm also aware that, that Father's Day can be difficult uh, for, for different reasons, and so uh, I made the practice uh, a long time ago when I was a, a full-time preacher to not preach a Father's Day or Mother's Day sermon, uh, but just to preach a sermon. So I don't know what you came expecting today, uh, but it's not going to be your traditional Father's Day sermon, uh, which for those of you who say Father's Day would just get beat up at church, hey, you're off the hook. Uh, you won't be. Um, if you were coming hoping to be built up as a father, I'm sorry. Uh, we love you. There's some socks and snacks in the lobby. <laughs> Somebody was smart enough to, uh, to come up with those. Now, we're working through a, uh, a series, right, as Chris asked uh, while he was gone, that we just kind of focus on discipleship. And as I said the first week, this would go any number of directions. Uh, so we started off the first week uh, with just thinking about the fact that, that so often we have the tendency to settle for cheap grace, that we want forgiveness, but we don't always want to put in the work to actually live out faith because it's difficult, it's hard, and sometimes we just like easy. Last week, we looked at Elijah on Mount Carmel, and we talked about the idols that we sometimes have in our lives. Uh, those things that have a way of kind of slipping in when we're not paying attention and taking over dominance, those, those areas of our lives where at times uh, we let something else or we look to something else for our meaning, for our for our hope, for what makes us secure, instead of looking to God Almighty. Uh, and today, probably a, a strange place to be on Father's Day, but today I want to look at an area of discipleship that we don't, we just don't talk about a lot in church. And that's the fact of what do we do when God is silent. And so for that, if you would, open your Bibles uh, to 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19, just a little bit after where we were last week. So if you have a little marker that you had in your Bible, you probably don't have to turn it. 1 Kings 19. Again, a little bit of an extended reading, but I want us to hear this story to set the stage. 1 Kings 19, beginning in verse 1, the word of the Lord today. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And then he, said, and then he Elijah, was afraid. 
And he got up and he fled for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, but he left his servant there. Then he himself, Elijah, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a solitary broom tree. He asked how he might die. Is it enough now, O Lord? Take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Get up and eat. And Elijah looked, and there at his head was a cake of baked was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And Elijah ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him and said, Get up and eat, otherwise the journey will be too much for you. So Elijah got up and ate and drank, and then he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. At that place he came to a cave and spent the night there. And then the word of the Lord came to him saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they're seeking my life to take it away. And the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks and pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. And Elijah heard it. He wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And then there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah answered, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant and thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. And then the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael as king over Aram, and also you shall anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and you shall anoint Elijah, son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, as prophet in your place. Whoever escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall kill. And whoever escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall kill. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Elijah was alone. Elijah was distraught. Elijah was in the darkness. This was supposed to be Elijah's victory celebration, his ticker tape parade through the canyon of heroes. He had just won the championship. He had defeated the enemies. He had stood up to the wicked king who had led Israel into idolatry and shown the entire nation who the true God really was. The idols had been proven to be nothing more than rock and stone. The Lord alone was God. To understand the joy of the triumph, you have to understand the pain of despair. Ahab is currently the king in Israel, and Ahab is often recognized as the worst king in Israel's history. Now, maybe that's a fair representation of Ahab's reign, or maybe there was someone who was worse. It's hard to say completely, because we don't have all the complete records, and often we humans are really good at labeling the opposing candidate as the greatest evil that has ever existed. So maybe Ahab's label as the worst king in Israel's history, is accurate. Or maybe he was merely the second or third worst king in Israel's history. Either way, Ahab was evil. 
Ahab had aligned himself with many of the nations around Israel, creating alliances and treaties that he thought would somehow keep Israel safe. Ahab was putting his trust and his security in the nations around him instead of the Lord our God, which we know from last week is really a practice in idolatry. In one particular alliance with the king of Tyre, Ahab had married the king's daughter Jezebel, who was headstrong and wicked beyond compare. And this pairing of Ahab and Jezebel proved to be a destructive alliance for Israel. All on the outside, it appeared wonderful. The kingdom was expanding economically and through military might. For most external factors, people would declare Israel was great. However, the economic prosperity blinded their eyes to the spiritual depravity as Ahab and Jezebel promoted the worship of the false gods Baal and Asherah on a national level to where they even persecuted and killed the prophets of Yahweh God. The economy was growing, but the nation was falling apart. And it was time to stand up for Yahweh. Since Baal was the God who was supposed to bring the rain and make the crops grow, the Lord God decided to hold back the rain and bring a drought on the land in direct opposition to Baal. Elijah the prophet marched into Ahab's throne room and declared, It will not rain again until I say so. And then, because of Ahab's immediate anger, Elijah ran and hid in a town called Zarephath, in the home of a widow where he was fed by ravens for two and a half years while Israel saw no rain and Israel experienced a drought and the crops didn't grow and the economic boom began to tumble and Ahab was so angry he searched high and low looking for Elijah, wanting to kill him for the trouble he had brought upon Israel. Now during the third year of the drought, Elijah showed up and challenges the prophets of Baal to a competition on Mount Carmel. You remember the story from last week. The 450 prophets of Baal are on one side, and Elijah by himself is on the other side, while all the people of Israel watched. How long will you waver between two opinions, Elijah declares? If Baal is God, then worship Baal. But if the Lord is God, then worship the Lord. Then the terms of the competition. Both sides will build an altar, cut up a bull, place it on the altar, but not light it. Then they will call on their gods, and the God who lights the sacrifice from fire from the sky is the true God. The prophets of Baal go first. And it's a miserable failure, as we all can expect. They ask, they scream, they beg, but no answer. They cut themselves with rocks. They try every trick they can think of and even invent a few more trying to light the altar. But there is no fire from above because Baal is not real. And now it's Elijah's turn. And he does something absolutely crazy. He builds his altar with 12 stones. That makes sense. And then he builds a trench around the altar. And he does something in the middle of a drought that is absolutely unheard of. Fill four stone jars with water and pour it on the altar. Do it a second time. Do it a third time. The altar is drenched. The trench is full and overflowing. Water in the middle of a drought is being wasted. And then Elijah prays. And God answers. And so much fire comes from the sky that the altar is consumed and the trench is consumed and all the water is dried up and the people of Israel declare in unison, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. This is Elijah's victory celebration time. But it doesn't end here. 
Elijah then slaughters the 450 prophets of Baal. Maybe a bit extreme, but that's what he does. And then Ahab rides in his chariot back to his palace in shame. But Elijah heads to the edge of the cliff and waits for the rain to come. And he waits, and he waits, and he waits. And after it hasn't rained in over two years, the rain clouds appear. And Yahweh God sends the rain. Again, proving who is the real God. And Elijah is so excited when he sees the rain and when he feels the rain that he tucks his garment up into his belt and he outruns Ahab back to his palace while Ahab is in his chariot. This is the time for the celebration. This is the moment of victory. Elijah has won the World Series. He's secured the state championship. He's just graduated valedictorian from a prestigious university. He's won the election, been named the new CEO. He's secured the Emmy, taken home the Oscar. This should be one of the highlight moments of life. As Elijah is interviewed after the follow-up celebration party, it's time for him to declare, we're going to Disney World. Elijah should be full of joy. This is a Kodak moment, if ever there was a Kodak moment. But he's not. Elijah's not happy. He's not full of joy. There's no celebration, no post-game party. Elijah's alone. Elijah's distraught. Elijah's in the darkness. Jezebel, the evil queen who in some way seems to have been part of the lead reason Israel was so fully entrenched in idolatry in the first place, Jezebel was not at Mount Carmel. She missed the competition. I'm not sure if she had a prior commitment like she had a hair appointment or if she just didn't bother to go because it seemed pointless, but Jezebel was not at the competition. Jezebel didn't witness the utter failure of the prophets of Baal or the way in which the entire nation seemed to repent at one moment and come back to Yahweh God. But she had just gotten the update from her husband, and she was not thrilled. Whether she was embarrassed over her false god being so defeated, or whether she was furious over the slaughter of the 450 prophets of Baal is excessive, it isn't clear. But her reaction is clear. She sends a message to Elijah, letting him know she is not happy, and she's coming for him. So help me if by this time tomorrow, you are not slaughtered like the prophets of Baal. Now, one might think it would have been more effective to not announce your intentions ahead of time with a special messenger and just send a hit squad to go slaughter Elijah. But then one doesn't know Jezebel. See, this is the same woman who killed Naboth simply because he wouldn't sell his ancestral property to the king. And the same woman who made it her personal goal to kill off all the prophets and followers of Yahweh God, and she was pretty good at it. No, she was very effective. It didn't matter that she announced it ahead of time. The announcement just made the threat even more real. Elijah knew Jezebel was serious. He knew the hit squad was coming. He knew there was very little hope for survival. So Elijah did what many of us would do. He ran. Elijah ran into the wilderness. But Elijah didn't run into the wilderness to escape and hide. Elijah ran into the wilderness to give up and ultimately to die. He's tired of being a prophet, tired of trying to stand up for God. What should have been his victory moment have turned into misery and fear. He was done with the whole God thing. It was time to go into the wilderness and die. And this talk, we admit, makes us a little uncomfortable. Elijah is one of the great heroes of faith. 
It's Elijah who's carried up to heaven in a chariot of fire and becomes one of two people in the Bible, the other being Enoch, who never died. It's Elijah who is prophesied about in Malachi as the one who will come before the great and terrible day of the Lord and will turn the hearts of the people back to God. It's Elijah who shows up with Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus as they discuss with Jesus his impending death on the cross. Elijah is the prototypical prophet in the Old Testament and is often used to represent all the prophets in Israel. I mean, there are vacation Bible schools built around the stories of Elijah and sermon series preached on the life of Elijah. There is even right now at this moment currently a statue of Elijah on Mount Carmel, arm in the air with a knife ready to strike down the prophets of Baal at the very spot where it may have taken place. There are people, maybe even some in this room, who have named their firstborn sons after Elijah. Elijah is a great hero of faith. So it makes us a little uncomfortable to talk about how Elijah was ready to give up. Elijah was ready to die. And Elijah was running away. And Elijah was convinced that God had abandoned him. That God had left him out to dry. That he was the only person in the entire nation still faithful to God. And God clearly didn't care. So why should Elijah care? I'm no better off than any of the other prophets who've come before me. The people don't care. The nation doesn't care. It sure seems God doesn't care. I'm done. I give up. I'm ready to die. We're a little uncomfortable with this sort of talk because that's not the way you're supposed to talk at church. We know God is good. We recount the praises of God. We sing songs about how we have 10,000 reasons to lift up our praises and how God never lets us go. We've become adept at giving the obligatory handshake and a smile and a response. How are things going? Great, wonderful, job is fantastic. My kids have never been better. We promote the mantra that if you just give yourself over to God, if you make God number one in your life, then everything else has a way of working itself out. And sometimes we even promote that mantra to non-Christians as a method of evangelism. Life not working out? Try God. Marriage falling apart? You just need more God. Kids having issues? Give them more God. We would never admit to a health and wealth gospel but we, because we know that's bad theology. But sometimes the way we talk... And the way we've learned to act, and the songs we sing, and the stories from the Bible we choose to tell, display that while we would never promote a health and wealth gospel, our language and our actions would hint towards that as our belief. What happens? What happens when you show up for the church gathering on Sunday and all the songs are praise songs, but you don't feel like praise? What happens when the greeter on Sunday that you barely know says, Hi, how are you? And you want to say, I'm barely holding on. But you know that's not the appropriate response. And you can tell they're already looking to say hi to the next person walking in. What happens when the preacher is talking about how when you're with God, you are never alone. And yet, while you're sitting in a pew with people around you, you've never felt more alone than you are right now. What happens when the worship leader starts to chant, and the congregation soon shouts out in unison, God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. And you really just want to scream with everything that is in you, no, he's not. God's not always good. Because last night, your spouse told you they want a divorce. Because last week, the doctor said the cancer has come back and there's nothing they can do. 
Because on Friday, the boss told you your services are no longer needed at this place of employment. And you have nothing left to offer. And you're so lost, and you don't know what to do. And you don't know how to pay the bills that you haven't even told your family yet. And you're here today because you always go to church on Sunday, and it's Father's Day, so of course you're here. But you're honestly not feeling it today. And you kind of think God's abandoned you. And you're wondering if any of this is real. And you're thinking about running off into the wilderness and saying goodbye to all this religion stuff. What happens then? We're really good about talking about discipleship when life is going great. And we're even pretty good at talking about discipleship when life is kind of so-so normal with its ups and downs. We like to tell the stories of Noah and Abraham and David and Esther, and we recount how Daniel survived in the lion's den, and Deborah led the people into victory over Sisera's army, and how God parted the waters of the Red Sea and led the people through on dry ground. We're not always good about talking about discipleship when God doesn't work things out, when the prayers aren't answered the way we want, when it seems that we're alone and life is difficult. How do we remain faithful and why do we keep following the discipleship when we don't seem to be receiving any good from it? Or when God doesn't seem to be acting the way God's promised to act? Or doing what God promised to do? Jeff's dad was dying. He was nearing 70 years old, which didn't make him a young whippersnapper anymore, but still at that age, many people in our culture still live past, but Jeff's dad was dying. He's been having some breathing problems for a while and various different infections in his lungs. His activity level had decreased greatly because of his difficulties breathing. The doctors had recently decided to give him one of those portable oxygen tanks, and so he would drag that around with him everywhere he went. But after some further testing and not getting better, it was determined he was in need of a transplant. But he was almost 70 years old, and he was already in poor health. And the doctor said the chances of even qualifying for the transplant list were slim to none. So Jeff shared the news with us, and we began praying. The whole church was praying. And miracle of miracles, he got on the transplant list. The doctors were amazed. It seemed impossible, but we weren't surprised because we had been praying. God was clearly working. Now it was time to pray for the right match. So Jeff shared the news, and we started praying. And we didn't grow discouraged when weeks turned into months because we had already clearly seen God working. The transplant was going to happen. We all knew it. It was a miracle he had even gotten on the transplant list to begin with. So of course he would get a transplant in time. During these weeks of, of prayer, Jeff had started this new routine. His place of work was about a mile from a, a beautiful cemetery, and Jeff had started the practice of spending his entire lunch break by driving over to the cemetery to his favorite spot, rolling the windows down, and spending the hour in prayer for his dad. Sort of morbid, maybe, to pray in a cemetery, but as Jeff told us, it's quiet. Nobody bothers you in a cemetery. One day, as Jeff was praying fervently, asking God to save his dad, and really begging for a sign, in the midst of that, a leaf blew in and landed on the dash. Whether he should or not, Jeff interpreted this leaf as a sign that, from God. God was going to take care of his dad. God was going to provide a match for the transplant. 
So Jeff kept the leaf on his dashboard as he continued to go every day at lunch to pray, week after week after week. But his dad kept getting worse. The transplant never came. Eventually it became clear he was out of time. And Jeff's dad died. All the prayers, all the pleading, all the signs that seemed to point towards a miracle, and then nothing. Why get on the transplant list if he wasn't even going to get a transplant? Why have all the positive moments if he was just going to die in the end anyways? Where was God in the midst of this moment? It didn't seem fair. Jeff brought the leaf to the funeral. He recounted the story of how the leaf had flown in his window as a sign from God that his dad was going to receive the transplant. Many of us knew the story of the leaf already, and it was painful to hear it retold again. We all thought God was going to come through and provide a transplant. And the realization, as we were sitting in that funeral, the realization that we all knew but none of us needed to speak was that God had failed to provide. We had prayed, but God had failed to provide. Jeff told us he was keeping the leaf. It was still a sign from God, he said. Sure, he misinterpreted it. God chose not to show up in the earth-shattering, miraculous moment by providing his dad with a lung transplant. But God did show up in a soft breeze and a stray leaf as a simple reminder that God was with him on the journey. That he was not alone. Don't give up. Stay faithful in discipleship. As Elijah is running into the wilderness, God shows up. But Elijah is so distraught, it's as if he doesn't even notice it. Elijah is running into the wilderness away from God, ready to give up, and yet God shows up and sends food and provides sustenance and sends a word of encouragement. This isn't anything new. For the last two years, God has fed Elijah through having ravens bring him food, of all things. But for some reason, Elijah has forgotten his history. So God shows up again to remind him, rise, eat, for the journey is long. God provides sustenance, and while the word of a long journey seems discouraging at first, it's a word of hope because God is certain Elijah will make it. Thus Elijah eats, and Elijah journeys. For 40 days and 40 nights into the wilderness to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. Mount Horeb, another name for Mount Sinai, the mountain where Moses stood for 40 days and 40 nights and conversed with God when he got the Ten Commandments. The mountain where Moses, in a time of desperation, asked to see God's presence, and God said, I will hide you in a cave in the cleft of the rock, and I will pass by so that you can see my backside and know that I am there. And now, so many years later, Elijah, in a time of great desperation, comes to the same mountain and perhaps even the same cave, and like Moses, waits to see if God will show up. Will God be present? And there was a great wind, and there was a great earthquake, and there was a great fire, but God was in none of these moments. But then, there was the sound of sheer silence, and Elijah covered his face because he knew God was there. He knew God was present. He knew he was not 
alone. And while Elijah was still in the wilderness, Elijah was in the darkness no longer. God was present. God was near. I'm afraid sometimes at church we fed people a false narrative. Follow God and life will be good. Follow God and things will work out. When you dedicate your life to discipleship, you'll never have doubt and you'll never have fear and God will always show up at just the right moments and things will always work out. And on one level, that's absolutely correct. God is faithful and God will provide. And there's no reason to worry or fear, so seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be given to you as well. But on another level, life is hard. Sometimes God doesn't answer. Sometimes prayer doesn't work the way we want. Sometimes we feel alone. Sometimes we doubt. Sometimes we wonder if this whole thing is worth it. And we're afraid to admit that discipleship is hard and grace is costly. And when grace is getting costly, sometimes it's hard to hold on. And when the way gets costly, we want God to show up in the big and powerful way to help us know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's all worth it. We want God to solve our problems and save us from our Jezebels even before they threaten to destroy us. And sometimes God does show up in the Mount Carmel moments and experiences, but most of the time, most of the time, that's not the way God chooses to work. Most of the time, God doesn't show up in Mount Carmel moments. Most of the time, most of the time, God shows up in the sound of sheer silence. Most of the time, God doesn't change the world through winds and storms, but through small, everyday occurrences of the divine will being worked out in our lives. And the question becomes, will we maintain discipleship when grace gets costly? Will we still maintain discipleship when it feels we are alone? Will we still maintain discipleship when we don't see our prayers being answered? Will we slow down enough to listen to the sound of sheer silence and recognize we are not alone? We are not abandoned. God is present and working. So keep plowing ahead into discipleship. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may he give you peace. We're going to sing a song in just a moment. I don't know where you are today, what's going on in your life. Uh, but we have this time, uh, we call it an invitation. Um, God is always there. You don't have to have a song to come to God. But it may be that the Spirit's been working in your heart this morning. Maybe you came this morning wanting to get baptized, or maybe today you just feel the Spirit telling you it's time to give your life to God. And the, Baptist, the baptistry is ready, and we would love to... Just spend a a few more moments together and celebrate that with you. Or maybe you need prayers this morning. Uh, Maybe life is hard. Maybe you're in one of those moments where you don't feel God and you need someone else to to have faith with you and to lean on them. Then feel free to, to head to the back. There'll be some elders in the back or come to the front or grab the person beside you and spend some time in prayer. Or just make this song a moment of, of dedication to God as we stand and sing.